We have another installment now in our series Life Behind the Blue Line, where cops talk about their lives and their jobs in their own words. Some police officers have spoken with us on the record, but many more were either barred from talking to the media by their departments or just skeptical themselves that a news program would represent them fairly. Today, we talked to one officer who insisted on remaining anonymous. And just to be clear, this cop has no connection to the Baltimore Police Department or the story that you just heard a minute ago. I work as a uh, police officer for a urban Midwestern department. Well, I've, I've been a police officer for um, between three to five years, we'll put it that way. And I'm just a regular patrol officer, so I I answer 911 calls. I, you know, try and, and provide, you know, proactive police service when it's appropriate and and just kind of handle, handle what pops up day to day. I do work the night shift. I don't give the precise hours, but think, you know, in the range of between 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. At, at least where I work, the the kind of work that we do is actually very seasonal. Uh, every summer, like clockwork, we have um, a whole bunch of robbery that we have to deal with where you might come in and just immediately out of roll call, you're answering 911 calls and, and you just, you go call to call all night and you don't really have time to kind of sit back and breathe. Our, our gang violence ticks up, so we get more shootings, especially during the summer, and especially the the really hot nights when it's, you know, 85 degrees at night. And for for some reason, that just makes the violence um, go nuts. On a busy Saturday night, I alone um, might take three robbery reports, you know, and at least one of those is probably going to involve um, a gun or a knife or significant injuries, you know, somebody knocked out with a brick or something like that. And then by the end of the winter, you actually kind of get bored with, you know, you'll have several nights in a row where you maybe have three or four calls you answer and you, and you're, you're kind of hunting for stuff to do. It is, it is actually kind of nice that we get as much of a slowdown in the winter as we do, because it kind of gives you time to recoup from the summer and fall. The job is a weird mix of uh, especially in 911 response, it's a weird mix of sedentary because you're sitting in your police car all the time and then sudden sprinting or like fighting for your life with somebody. And, you know, when you're working nights, it's not like the places that serve healthy food are open. You know, it's like pizza shops and maybe some Euro shops or something. Um, although I'm I'm working on reversing this trend, I'm I'm not as healthy as I was 10 years ago. When I get home from a shift at work, even even on nights where it's not absolutely crazy um, and, and you get home on time instead of having to finish up reports and overtime, you, you get home and because of the nature of the work, you're always um, at least a, a little bit alert or on edge. Multiple times um, I've had a gunfight start within 30 to 40 feet of me. You just never have that time to relax, and you generate fatigue, and it seems to be cumulative. And this is this is true of everybody I've I've talked to in the job, and everybody agrees that when you work um, five, six, seven days in a row, by the end of that sixth or seventh day, there there's like a level of fatigue that sits in that just doesn't go away until you get two, three days off, and you can kind of relax and not, you know, try and watch the 
the hands of everybody that goes by, try and think, you know, oh, is, is that guy going to, you know, is he following that other person because he's planning on a robbery or just just having that chance to just not in, intently watch everybody that comes within a block of you um, is really important for being able to actually just reset your brain. The, the stress inherent in police work or, for that matter, being a paramedic, being a firefighter, there's a an unavoidable level of stress. I mean, there's just no way to get around that that's going to happen. You know, I, the, the rate of suicide amongst police officers is some number of times the national average, stuff like that. And so just, just like the military, um, police departments and paramedic agencies and, and um, firefighting departments are are starting to understand that they, they do have to put in place programs to help deal with that. But there's just no way to eliminate it. I believe that somebody has to do this work. You, you just come into contact with, with dangerous or violent people or even just people that are, are regular folks and they're, they're on the worst or amongst you know the handful of the worst days in their life or things are out of control in, in whatever their situation is. You know, call after call, you, you show up and then you try and calm everything down, split people apart, you know, try and figure out what's going on, figure out if a crime occurred, at the very least, keep any further injuries from occurring, um, or, you know, if there are injuries that have already happened, handle those, um, you know, whatever you got to do. No department in this country, I don't think, has the time or the money to give everybody all the training that they should get in an ideal world. And so... It's kind of on you um, to maintain your own, you know, I don't know, skills with a firearm, all that kind of stuff, because all those are perishable skills. They all go away. And like I said, I mean, our job is to be out there answering 911 calls. So we can't spend, you know, two days a week training, which in an ideal world, we that's what we would be doing. But that's never going to happen. You know, one of my stories from this past summer um, was I went from one call where a 17-year-old girl, um, who I believe was a runaway, um, she had been sexually assaulted by um, a group of people. Um, she had bruises on her, her neck, her limbs, all that kind of stuff. Um, she was, you know, in, incoherent with trauma. You know, I, I rode to the hospital with her in the ambulance. Um, and then from there, I went to a um, a woman who had called 911 um, because she was upset at the customer service at the hotel she was staying at. And so you, you, you just have to develop that skill where whatever the previous call is, now you're done with it. Now you handle the new thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I do think uh, that police are seen, you know, not by everybody, but by... A lot of people, and and especially in the area where I live and work, extremely negatively right now, um, were viewed with a lot of suspicion. I honestly don't think the public has any idea what's involved in police work and the kind of the kind of work that we do. You know, the average person will maybe once or twice in their life they'll leave their bag visible in their car, and somebody breaks out the window and takes their bag, um, or you know, worse, they, they might be robbed or something. Whereas for me, that's one of, 
between 10 and 20 such incidents on any given weekend. They have no idea. You know, in my precinct, we have a significant problem with robbery. And so if, for example, there's a robbery that occurs on one street corner and we have video or a good witness description of the suspect, and then, you know, a half hour later, we find one or more of those suspects, everybody watching doesn't have any idea. They All they see is, here's these three guys that were just standing on the sidewalk, and then suddenly a whole bunch of cops showed up, and as far as they can tell, those three guys haven't violated any laws, and so, you know, why are the police doing that? People, I think, have a tendency to just, they see something that happens, and they don't step back and think, man, they're, the <laughs> the cops are being really serious about whoever these folks are, or this guy is, that they're they're trying to take into custody. I wonder if there's a reason for that. You know, I, I think about all of these kind of issues more than is probably healthy. I would like people to expand the research that they're doing. And this is a huge problem in my city right now. Um, researchers are, are tasked to come in and, and look at the police department, which is fine. Um, but then the only thing that they look at is the police department. And so, you know, if we're going to talk about racially disproportionate arrests in my city... Um, I would like to see research that addresses the racial proportions of suspect descriptions in our 911 calls um, and police reports we receive from victims. I would like to see that research compared with the racial makeup of our victims more broadly, uh, because I can I can tell you that I don't have the the exact numbers on me right now, um, but somewhere between like 85 and 95 percent of our murder and shooting victims are African American. So when we're talking about you know disproportionate impacts of police action and stuff like that, well, I mean there's there's a lot of stuff that's disproportionate in our society right now. The poverty rate in the African American community in my city is is higher than you know most of the other communities in the city, and a lot of the effects of the economic recovery um, have not showed up in the the areas of my city that are you know historically African American. You know, crime tends to be higher in, the, in those neighborhoods. And so, you know, both our, our suspects and our victims are not proportionate to the racial distribution of the city. I would really like for research to start looking at, you know, if, if these are the actions the police are taking, to what extent is that driven by response to, um, you know, the, the 911 calls and stuff that we're receiving? <laughs> Here's, here's another thing that I think people don't understand um, about policing is that so when we have, for example, a significant robbery problem in my precinct, we are going to stop the wrong guy sometimes. All we have to go on is like sometimes, you know, at best, like maybe grainy video or a, um, a description given to us by a witness because victim descriptions are typically useless we are going to stop the wrong guy sometimes. That's going to happen. And then we have some time to investigate. And we're like, oh, it looks like this is the wrong guy. And we take the handcuffs off and, and send them on their way. And I'll, I'll say to him, you know, yeah, I, I understand getting stopped by the police, especially, you know, if we're stopping you at gunpoint because it's related to like a gunpoint robbery or something. That's awful. Like four or five cops hop out 
in uniform. We've got guns pointed at you. We tell you to lie down on the ground. The, the ground is gross or uncomfortable or wet, whatever it is. We put handcuffs on you. We might, you know, kneel on you to, to limit your mobility. That That's awful. And I, I get it, but I just, if we want to do things like take um, a violent robber off the street, then that is a cost that we're going to have to be willing to pay as a, as a society collectively. And we need to just have people understand that if the police hop out on you and, and we're giving you some commands that as long as you just comply with those, whatever they are, even though you, you yourself know for a fact that you didn't do anything, we don't know that. If, if we're going to be able to stop the right guy, then we have to be able to run the risk of stopping the wrong guy. The thing that I think creates a problem for media portrayals of police is that we're really not able to provide our side of the story or our evidence. That's why you get a lot of these very samey statements from you know a, a, an agency's uh, public information officer or something that says, we're aware of this allegation and an internal and external review are being conducted, something like that. I do think that uh, we're going to have to, across the country, start looking at, for example, the way Las Vegas Metro PD, um, every time they have an officer-involved shooting, I think within 72 hours, they have a media briefing. They provide some of the context, you know, some of the, the call record, um, weapons recovered at the scene, they post some of the, the body cam video. And I, I think more agencies are going to have to start doing that. You know, I, I don't know exactly what the answer is. Agencies across this country have to do a better job of communicating. We're, we're creating a really long-term maybe trust deficit by our kind of collective refusal to communicate more clearly. If you're a cop who'd like to participate, give us a call, 8778-MY-TAKE. 